I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr it's happening i can feel it how would you explain it it's beautiful god it's god i see god how do you like that why it's preposterous thank you very much information in the form of energy streams in streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy Eisenberg, a medical doctor trained in psychology and psychiatry, a former associate professor of medicine at the University of Vermont and lecturer in parapsychology at the University of Toronto. He's the author of Inner Spaces, Parapsychological Explorations of the Mind, which came out in 1977, and his new book that we'll be talking about again is Dream It, 
to do it, the science and the magic. You know, I used to teach parapsychology as a credit course at the University of Toronto, and the students were almost mesmerized by my presentations, so they wouldn't be taking notes, and their jaws are like, you know, hanging loose, slack. And I kept explaining to them, you know, there will be an exam. You are going to have to remember and understand these things. And a number of them were surprised that their grades were so low because although they were fascinated by the material, they were taken, you know, away by it, so to speak, forgot about taking notes, forgot you have to study this stuff. It was just interesting. So I took it apart. It's a compliment. <laughs> I have kind of warned people that the book is a mind blower and you know it is in many ways. Yeah, so since we're doing a little follow-up here, I thought I would share with you some of my experience since reading your book. Sure. And, and how it's inspired me to engage in and play much more actively within the imaginal realm and explore new territory. And this morning, I had another magical couple of hours kind of like surfing the edge of the portal or the uh, infinite creative void. Excellent. I'm really glad to hear that, you know, you're working with experientially. I, I was hoping it would not just be, you know, an intellectual read for people. And as I said, uh, I regard it, and perhaps again, you're, you're really sharing this. It's entheogenic in its design. It's the only book I'm aware of that if you follow through it, literally, as I say, it kind of blows your mind. You, you suddenly have a different realization, understanding and experience of reality. Well, about 25 years ago, I read John Perkins' book, The World Is As You Dream It, which talks a lot about the dreaming aspect that you talk about. But yeah, you do bring in the science of it. You bring in the quantum mechanical implications behind it, and you put it all together. Yeah, as I said in the foreword, you know, the author's note, I'm not claiming that anything is totally original that I have in my book. What is, I think, the uniqueness of my book is I've connected the dots. I've tied it all together in a way that I believe gives conclusive, definitive proof of both the primacy of consciousness and what people have called God consciousness. It's not just theory. It's not just a hypothesis. It's not just, you know, summarizing other people's views. It proves it. Yeah, and that's actually been the journey of my life is to search out and explore as many of these dots from as many different perspectives as possible to create the most holistic, big picture perspective of all of this. And I know that and I appreciate that. You know, many of the people who have interviewed me are fairly bright and interested in new developments, but they don't have that personal, you know, passion that goes way back to deeply for themselves to try to understand and make sense of things. So I, I appreciate that about your depth of your interest. So this morning, and actually in the last week, because I do this a lot in the morning, I dive into this sort of imaginal realm. And, and I love the merging of these uh, metaphors of surfing on the edge of kind of like discovery, you know, the exploration of what's possible in the imaginal realm and the possibilities of dreaming in the way that you talk about it. Yeah. And what you've actually inspired me to do is to bring a little more intention to that because otherwise I tend to indulge or bask in the formlessness of it all right. and just allow whatever to arise out of it on its own. Good, good. Again, I'm really happy to hear you're aware that you can work and play with these concepts. They're, they're not, again, just hypothetical. Yeah, 
And this dreaming business is very, very powerful stuff. And one of the things I was playing off of again this morning is this old formula from John Lilly, who I suspect you're familiar with. Yes. Yeah, I don't know about your formula yet, but yes. <laughs> In his book, The Center of the Cyclone, he mm -hmm. wrote, what we believe to be true either is true or becomes true within the limits of the mind. And in the province of the mind, there are no limits. And that's something that has stuck with me and I've carried with me for the mm. past 45 years, kind of like a Zen koan yes. that keeps revealing new layers and new, new levels of realization. Mm -hmm. Well, he was definitely one of the, the pioneers of studying consciousness in the sense that as he went cross species, as you know, with dolphins, and didn't just assume, as some do arrogantly, that it's only humans who really have some, you know, superior level of consciousness. Yeah. And another thing that I was thinking about this morning was you might be familiar with Carl Schwarzschild and, and his black hole mathematical equations from back around the time that Einstein was formulating his theory of relativity. And several years ago, I heard a talk by Nassim Haramein talking about the implications of that and how, I'm not sure if it was Schwarzschild who theorized this, but that there's a black hole at the center of everything, down to the smallest subatomic particles up to the, the largest galaxies in the universe. And this relates to the thing that you did in the book of asking the question, what's the shortest distance between two points, which right. you say is actually folding space, using the metaphor of taking a piece of paper with two points on it and just folding it so that the two points come together. Correct. And, mm -hmm. and that there's like a virtual infinity of these black holes in the universe that are all interconnected through entanglement, or you could think of it as like these interdimensional wormholes that fold space or collapse space. I'm going much deeper than that, Tonio, and saying that everything that we think about, think we measure, perceive, uh, have formula for in the so-called outer physical world, all of that, not just some of it, all of it is illusion. And in terms of, you know, the black holes or multiple black holes, everything ultimately comes out of just one source. It can be reabsorbed by that source. I call it universal consciousness, universal mind. So these theorizations, and sometimes people are also doing forms of experiments with measurements of smaller and smaller particles and more and more subtle weak forces, all of that's illusion. The physicists themselves, you know, say that, you know, like one of, one of the quotes that I found really interesting, that, and there's a story behind this too, by the way, I was traveling down for a winter vacation down to Jamaica. And when I arrived at the airport in Jamaica, there was a newsstand. And I was just curious to maybe pick up some reading while I was on vacation there. And I noticed an article in New Scientist, which is an unusual publication, I thought, to find in, you know, Jamaican airport. And the title of it was, What is Reality? The more we look at it, the less real it seems. So I'm not just saying that from my point of view, I'm saying that's even what the physicists are saying. As you know, I have several quotations from some of the most eminent physicists in my book, all, you know, with the same line of thinking and conclusion that the universe is not fundamentally material, it's conscious. Mm -hmm. And that's the wonderful implication of these scientific discoveries and new theories that they're coming up with. That's really bringing together 
these insights and wisdom from many of the ancient traditions around the world in line with the latest discoveries or, or more recent discoveries in quantum mechanics and, and science, which is slowly catching up. And, and that's what I found fascinating and what I partly referred to when I mentioned how I've connected the dots, uh, the incredible convergence of mystical insights, indigenous teachings of old, with the most modern discoveries and understandings in modern physics. And the mystics and a lot of the religious faiths were built on experiences that people had at one point. And those are all, if you like, just coming on the mind, sort of the soft technology of the mind and consciousness, as opposed to what parallels us and comes to the same conclusion in modern physics, where you're working with very sophisticated, expensive material instruments. That's like a hard science sort of speak approach as opposed to the soft approach, but they both converge on exactly the same understanding of reality. The public doesn't know this. Many scientists are not even aware of this more recent upgrade in understanding of science itself. Mm -hmm. And I'm really only interested in the direct experience. I'm not really interested in, in all the intellectual stuff around it, but I love being able to use the intellectual stuff to help bring me back to that because, you know, the way our minds work, we have to use every trick in the book to bring ourselves back to what is at the core of yeah. reality. Well, similarly, although, you know, on my level, obviously my book's an intellectual book, I personally am more interested as well. I think it's more important as my understanding as explained in the book, the inner world as opposed to the so-called outer world, where we mostly, again, occupy our limited consciousness with outer world concerns. I think it's the inner world. That's why I also say in the book, with all these different crises that we're facing right now, fundamentally, the only way out of all of this is in, inwards. My first book over a half century ago, where I didn't even have a complete understanding of all this, but the title of that book back then was Inner Spaces. So I've also had this very long-term fascination, interest, and valuation that the inner world was the more important world. And it was both in part, you know, ignored or actually referred to in, in negative derogatory terms. I still remember as a young student in, you know, primary school being disciplined by the teacher at the front of the, the classroom to stop daydreaming as if like it's a bad thing to do to daydream. So it's not just, you know, our night dreams, it's even our daydreaming. It's another way again of going in and understanding things differently and being more creative. As an aside, if you don't mind, just to check, are we recording now? <laughs> yes, we are. Okay. <laughs> and and that's and that's because you reminded me <laughs> right at the beginning. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> See, I, I try to operate seriously with no assumptions, which is not easy. You know, it's very because, hard. It's one of the hardest things in the world to do. Yeah. And the second hardest thing is just dealing with our own ego. Yeah. You know, it's self-protective to keep us apart somewhat and competitive with others. Like the book I'm working on right now, you know, how to better manage our emotions so they don't control us, but rather they, you know, enrich our world and give us some passion, but they don't control us. We think through things more wisely. And the ego is one way, as Shakespeare said, we're all but players, you know, on the stage. So there's, as some would say, there's no me on this level of reality without we. And so we have to have more of this collective understanding that yes, on one level we're different in many different respects, but we all come from the same source and we're all connected. And we have to get back to that both understanding 
and the experience, the feeling of connection. And strangely enough, and even this surprised me as well, so many people have come to the conclusion that the fundamental sort of connecting principle in the entirety of everything, the universe, if you like, is love. And that seems almost at first ridiculous. And even myself, when I was, you know, reading this in the writings of other people, I was seeing somewhat dismissive of it. I thought like love and the universe and design and being fundamental to connect everything. But then I came to understand when you are feeling love, you're feeling connection, whether it's with, you know, a life partner, whether it's with a good friend, it may be your pet. It may be for some people, some vista in nature. It's love. It connects you. And by contrast, hate separates us. Anger separates us. And we're living at an era where we have all these multiple existential threats, but perhaps the worst one of all of them, and they're bad threats collectively, but the worst of all of them is this lack of appreciation of our fundamental connection and need to maintain and sustain that connection in a more balanced and healthier way. And instead, right now, we have the opposite. I refer to partly, you know, the concept of Buddhism of the Three Poisons. We have the opposite right now. It's like almost, you know, madness run wild. People are inflamed with anger. And I mentioned I'm doing a second book now on, on dealing with emotion. And my understanding of this is that when you're feeling fearful and confused, and most of us are, the way the world is right now at this level, who do you believe? What's true? What's right? What's doable? What do we have to change? When you're dealing on that level, it's very confusing because again, you're looking at all of the fundamental differences. But we have to learn to recognize in ourselves when we're feeling anger and worse, when we're feeling hatred, we're off center in ourselves. We're even more disconnected from our source, if you like, from God consciousness. And we have to understand this and be more I would say self-discipline, self-regulated. We call it sometimes emotional self-regulation. To understand, it's almost like an indicator, just like I've had a dashboard and, you know, lights going on. So when you're feeling anger, again, or hatred, your mind is, your consciousness, if you like, is, is distorted. You're not actually experiencing things in a true way. You're not experiencing things in any way that's helpful for you or for others. And if we could recognize that, we could self-correct be calmer, be more connected, enjoy each other, be more collaborative. The expression, you know, on this level, two heads are better than one. So again, different people, different frames of reference, different cultures, collectively, we can enrich each other. And instead of just reacting to things and being reactive in the world, we can, we can intentionally act in proactive ways that that you say are, are coming from this orientation of of connection of love and yes love is it's a really um difficult concept for our culture because it's so tainted with notions of romance yes. and attack right. attack attachment you know yeah. possession and that's why, in part, as I said, my own initial reaction when reading, you know, this is an insight conclusion of many others before me, was to dismiss it because of those reasons, thinking it's, it's, you know, more superficial, more frivolous. What does it have to do with fundamental reality? 
has everything to do with fundamental reality in terms of why there's not only unitary consciousness and why we have a, a world of multiplicity and other sentient beings all over the universe. Yeah, I had an interesting evolution with love about 12, 13 years ago after a very difficult separation. I realized that after going through a tremendous amount of pain and suffering that even though it was so painful, ultimately I did not, I still did not want to allow anything to shut my heart down, you know, to prevent me from being able to experience the kind of love that you can only experience when your heart is open. And at the time, I also started doing some imaginal work with intention. And I decided after going through a process of figuring out what it was that I most deeply wanted, which took a while, I realized that at the core of it, at the deepest level, what I wanted to experience was love and joy. So I started working with those two things together as one. And I combined it with a walking meditation and breathing meditation. Mm -hmm. At the time, I had a dog, so I would take my dog out to the park and we'd, we'd walk. And I would project out love and joy to everything I saw mm -hmm. continually on every outbreath with tremendous force, with chi. Mm -hmm. And it was a very powerful experience, which completely shifted everything in my life. And this morning, I had a new realization about that, that because we are all connected, interconnected at the deepest core level, that I didn't need to project it out anymore. That's right. That I could just go to the core of my own being and just experience that That's and right. know that through that fundamental interconnection and entanglement that we have with everything, mm -hmm. that, that just by being in that, experiencing that love in that place inside myself and being in that love, that I'm playing my part. Yes, and you may remember in my book, Dreaming to Do It, I talk about the heart-brain, literally, as we understand, you know, the physical brain structure and what it does. There are brain cells, neurons in the heart. It has its own memory system. It has the ability to control the brain more than the brain has the ability to modify the heart. And as I explain, we have a choice subjectively to just try to be more aware of that area of our body, the heart area, when you're contemplating some decision, more importantly, even when you're in relationship with someone, whether literally right in front of you or, or virtually, or even just thinking of them, when you're focused your body awareness more than the heart area, you are more connected to a larger field to eventually everything, not just, you know, other people. And so that's going again in, it's not, as you say, having to project intention externally, it's just connecting and accessing, which is already there. Right. And this language of black hole made me think of, well, we can come up with a new term. We could create a term like white hole or, or something, something more creative to conceive of the heart as a kind of interconnected focal point with everything on that level. Yeah, it, it's almost like a portal. Yeah, it is a portal. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to dive a little more into was your experience of that realization that you had. Yes. As a child at the age of 10 
Yeah. Which you, the words you used were the experience of awareness being aware of itself. Yeah. So I, w- I would love for you to describe that. And I, and I totally uh, understand how difficult it is yeah, to put it is. things like that, that. that. You know, into words. Yeah. But people have said about mysticism, it's ineffable, you know, it can't be expressed in words. And I, you know, I, I take that on as a challenge in the book. So again, I, I appreciate you understand the complexity uh, of the answer required to that, but I will try and to keep it simple as well. So around age 10, I developed a different level of awareness. I called it or I term it as I think of it now in words, and it was an awareness of being aware. It wasn't just being aware. It was an awareness of being aware. And in that awareness of being aware, which is like a greater, higher level of awareness, I was more aware of the arbitrariness and the superficialness of all the things that constitute what we considered, you know, our, our normal regular life in the outside world. And here I am just a youngster. And that's what fueled my curiosity broadly to more deeply understand what is the nature of this, you know, external world. And and some of the things, again, that seemed contradictory to me, I, I think I may have heard to one before, which was fundamentally at a young age, I was going to a, a Christian school. And so every day we, we had Lord's Prayer and sometimes some stories from the Bible. And one day I asked my teacher, if God is omnipotent, has all power, omniscient, knows everything, why would he then create us? Why would he need to create us? And I was disciplined for asking that question and told, you know, that our finite minds cannot understand the infinite. But for me, at that young age, once I had the awareness of being aware, I had to know more. I had to understand more. And I was an outlier. It wasn't something encouraged by my teachers, obviously, or any of my schoolmates or family. It took many years, but I was following an inner path. And as you shared a few minutes ago, ultimately, that is the source. So although it was a little difficult feeling someone disconnected from everybody else's level of interest and understanding, on the other hand, it gave me a much deeper access to wisdom, and we might even call it a form of power, because everything comes out of consciousness. So all the things, again, we've created in the physical world come out of our consciousness. So to be able to do that is a form of power. So at that age, because I remember having some what we would call mystical experiences of that age, I had no context within which to to -hmm. frame any of that or to understand any of that or to contextualize it in any way, shape or form. So I'm curious what you were going through in that sort of a way. Well, similarly, I, I had no framework around me to help me understand, make sense, uh, work further with, with such awareness and, and, and ideas. But I, I started to, at a very young age, become very interested in, in reading. And this is obviously pre-computer times. We're talking many years ago. At this point, I'm 76, so it's a long time ago. But at a very early age, I became very interested in reading everything I could about science and broadly, not just one area of science. And then I started reading some of the attempts that people had to go back to the New Testament of the Bible and try to put it in everyday, so to speak, English and concepts. And even some of them try to connect it to some of the findings that were coming out in physics. And I discovered some really offbeat publications. I don't know how, because again, this is pre-computer time. And I don't know, I'd share this before with you, but one of the sources I found for my education was a newsletter, a small circulation one. It wasn't exactly advertised or repeat. I don't know how I found out about them, but it was by two people who are very interested in understanding the 
relationship, the convergences between the ancient religious teachings and some of the findings in modern science. So that was like a beginning for me. And I was an avid reader of that newsletter even though I was young. And I would actually occasionally write them back then. You had to do it by snail mail. Write them some questions and comments appreciatively usually. I wasn't challenging them, but to better understand things. And they were so impressed at one point in the types of questions and points I was making, they invited me to become an associate editor. They didn't understand. I was just a kid. I wasn't trying to impress them. It was just that that was the depth you know, of my, my interest, my passion. And it just kept expanding. Yeah, I didn't start that kind of reading until I was around 15, but I was fortunate to, my father had a very interesting library that I, I started mm-hmm. diving into. The first thing I dove into, as I remember, actually, you know, before the more serious science type publications was science fiction, which are interesting because I didn't realize it back then. But the various things that the science fiction authors were describing out of purely their imagination, which did not yet exist in our physical consensual reality, did subsequently, you know, as I was getting older, I could see this happening. They started manifesting into real inventions, real devices. And it helped me starting to realize that, again, they were internally sourcing this through imagination. Most of these science fiction writers weren't exactly, you know, scientifically educated themselves to a great degree. They weren't scientists necessarily. There were some exceptions like Arthur C. Clarke, but for the most part, they were just using their imagination. Yet what they were coming up with were things in, you know, the years to come would actually be invented physically, produced and utilized, including things like space travel, GPS, smartphones, all of these things came out of their imagination. So at an early age, and I didn't appreciate the significance yet, that's where it was coming from. Not laboratory discoveries, not, you know, new computer simulations from imagination, human imagination as the source of everything. And I said, you know, ironically, coming back to my book again, that today we sort of have this almost a form of, you know, technical sorcery where people dream up various things they would like to be able to do, control, access, and find people who can write code and develop these apps on our smartphones that enables to do all these magical things. It would have been all of this magic at one point. And again, it all came from the imagination. So first they imagine, for example, with an app, what they would want the app to do. Then they back, you know, step and look at, okay, so how do we put this in code to make it actually happen, to manifest? And it's almost like it's a form of alchemy, you know, code into what we call, you know, material functional reality. But again, everything comes from just within. And the realization that we can actually do that, that we have access to that. Yes. And unfortunately, again, so many people have lost their way that way. And so they're very distracted with social media, with some charismatic speakers, peer pressures, again, oblivious that all of that is not nearly as important to them, as true as what they could access within. If people would only go within when they hear certain perhaps politicians or other types of leaders going on about various things that they're advocating, and if they would go within and sort of do that internal truth test in part from their heart, does this person really seem like they're coming from good, from wisdom, or is it off balance? Is it their ego? Is it their agenda? Are they trying to manipulate us? Are they trying to exploit us? And not just take it for granted 
that all the people out there are all good. I remember years ago when I was hosting my own national radio show here in town on CBC called Odyssey, one of the people I interviewed was Theodore Rozak. He was a sociologist who was one of the pioneers studying the hippie movement. And I remember asking him about what his personal key observations and perhaps even concerns were, because his general writings were fairly favorable to the hippie movement, but he also expressed that he did have some concerns. And the main one, he was talking partly about the psychedelic usage back then, which is interesting how it's coming back into popularity, even in the medical realm right now. But back then he said he was concerned when people were, you know, taking things like LSD, acid, as they called it back then, that they were opening themselves up to anything. And he said they're ignoring the teachings of many of the religious traditions, many different ones, that there's also evil in the world. It's not just good. And so he was concerned for them that they were making themselves potentially, you know, vulnerable. Similarly, there are certain things that people regard as just, you know, recreational pastime for play, like Ouija boards. Again, same thing, though. If you're seriously playing with a Ouija board, you are opening yourself to anything and everything and not necessarily just good. And even in our current world, many of us tend to get fixated on the problems of the world and completely forget about the possibility and the choices we can make creatively to better understand them and how we can you know, engage creatively to solve them rather than thinking or attempting to solve the problem with the same mindset yep. that created them. And this fundamentally, you know, is the purpose of my book. I, I call it a wake-up call. I want people to understand they've been misled, they're misorientated, to understand how to access truth and real power within. And so the book is both an explanation of that reality, but it also tells them how to do it. As you know, I actually give the keys for how do you work with, I call the plasticity of reality, because you couldn't learn to change it. And coming back to your point about how we get so caught up and defeated by all the problems in the world, both the quantity and the degree of them. They say we have many existential threats. So if you recall in the first chapter of my book, which I title Things Are Not As They Seem, as a metaphor, I used the example how young children are taught with bare hands to break through a wooden board. And they do so again with a bare hand. They don't hurt themselves. And it's a real wooden board. But the way they're instructed to do it is not to hit the board to break it. The instruction is strike beyond the board. In other words, don't give validity unnecessarily to the obstacle. Aim higher and beyond. So I meant that as an illustrative metaphor broadly. And it's interesting how the martial arts traditions are full of practices like that, that actually demonstrate that reality as we believe and assume it to be is untrue. There are practices which are actually much more mind-blowing than that example that you gave. Oh, I know. Yes. Like, for example, the yeshiva who founded Aikido, which is one of the most modern of all the martial art techniques. He was old and crippled with arthritis. And yet there's video showing a dozen or so people with black belts and karate all around him attacking him. And he has no weapons and he's old and he's partly crippled with arthritis and they end up in a heap all around him. It's like again, another level or of magic. Yeah. My father studied with the legendary grandmaster Chen Men Ching, Tai Chi wow. grandmaster. Mm -hmm. And he was well under five feet tall, weighing well under 
100 pounds. Mm -hmm. And he was at the time he was in his 80s and he would have people three times his size try to attack him. Mm -hmm. And he would with absolutely no effort at all, he would just touch them and they would go flying 20 or 30 feet across the room. Yeah. And in the Russian martial arts, so to speak, which they call Sistema, they don't even have to touch people. They can do it at a distance and make them fall. Yeah, and in the Shaolin community that was kind of attached to our community in San Diego, their master, he would do demonstrations. He would hold a spike in his palm. His palm would be outstretched, and he would just Mm -hmm. use his chi to project the spike into a wall across the room. Uh And even the strongest of his students couldn't remove the spike from the wall. Uh And, And then he would walk up to it and with two fingers just effortlessly pull the spike out of the wall. I could only guess in that, you know, the last part of what you just shared, unlike, you know, the students or other people who are around who try to use their physical force to pull it out of the wall and they couldn't, he just used intention. Yeah. Some kind of what we would consider magical force that we don't understand in our culture. However, you know, as I mentioned too in my book, the, the leading edge research at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which was founded by the former lunar astronaut Edgar Mitchell, they have found when, when people are asked in a laboratory, you know, setting to just imagine that it can affect physical instrumentation at some distance from them, even if it's electrically shielded, they can. Even just, you know, everyday people who are willing to volunteer for these experiments. But again, our education is all about the outside world. So we, we've forgotten in, in so-called primitive cultures and in some of the third world countries still, that's still something that's in the teaching and in the experience of the people. But we here in what we think is the more developed West have lost sight of that. It's like, you know, we're, we're sort of the, the prisoners in Plato's cave. Yeah. We, we think we understand reality and it's an extremely limited and restricted level of reality, which does not serve us or anyone else. But you have to have courage. As you know, I talk about again in my first chapter, you have have courage to ask those deeper questions, not just of someone else in terms of say, are they truthful? Are, are they coming from good? Are they coming from evil? But to be able to ask the fundamental questions like, is all of this real? Is this something I have to just accept and fit into? Are people who hear voices, who people who see things that others don't, are they always crazy? Or are there some who maybe are not crazy? And they really can navigate through these different levels in a very useful, helpful way. So again, you know, that's my main purpose right now with releasing these teachings is to wake people up to understand, to remember their true nature of how they can be so different, how our world can be so different and to do so before it's almost too late for this love reality to continue. And I guess from the perspective of where we are in our culture, it begins by unraveling our sense of certainty about what we believe to be true and what we assume to be true and the assumption that what we're seeing and experiencing is all that is. And that's difficult in terms of, you know, the emotional resistance to that. When I finally had my, I call it almost like a revelation experience in 2018, when I suddenly had this convergence of all these different forms of information I was studying and, and more, more recently collecting for a keynote presentation coming up. And so when I had the realization that everything we've been taught in one level in a sense is wrong, because what we're taught as reality is not reality. 
and what we're taught is our abilities is not reflective of our real abilities. And as I came to this understanding that we're all from, again, this one source of consciousness, like the grand dreamer, emotionally in this realization, instead of feeling excited, like, you know, wow, Eureka, I have this fundamental discovery to, you know, share with others and maybe win some, you know, achievement awards or whatever. It wasn't like that. It was the opposite. It was like, more like, oh my gosh, I'm all alone in reality. I'm just dreaming up that there's other people and other things out there in the world. And that was a scary thought to be all alone. And I think that's what blocks a lot of people if they do try to go a little deeper and question these things. But fortunately for me, almost immediately after that sense of pain and fear of being alone was a realization, quite the contrary. No, I, in this world of multiplicity, am connected to everyone and everything. Totally different sense of it. But most people would be blocked by the fear, I think. That is such an incredibly fascinating paradox. And I've experienced that as well. And I play with that at times. Like often when just out in the world, I'll remember that, oh yeah, this world that I'm seeing around me, it doesn't exist out there. I'm not seeing it through my eyes and my senses. It's actually emerging from inside of me. Yeah. And that's a wonderful revelation to continually remind myself of. And and as I'm doing that, it's like I can actually directly experience the world actually coming out from inside of me and appearing before me. And it's a wonderful shift of perspective, but it's hard to maintain in our culture. And yes. And that's why I, I, I give, as you remember, very explicit instructions at the, near the end of my book on how to work with lucid dreaming. Like, how can you learn to be able to kind of swim in that other dimension by your choice, whether it's to you know overcome fears, whether it's to gain more knowledge, whether it's to try to come up with some new innovation, a, a more creative way of dealing with something, whatever it might be. But to realize that in that level of dreams, it's more obvious that reality is plastic, it's malleable. It's flexible. It can be changed. And to realize the truth of the shamanic teachings, where they believe that you literally dream the world into existence. And to realize you have choice of how you dream it into existence, of how it evolves, of how things transform. You're not really sort of a passive victim. You're just, you know, stuck here. You're born and you have to just, you know, survive with the fittest and try to make the best of it. That is illusion. So when you learn to play with the dream, you also learn, even when you're so-called awake, that you're not passive anymore, that you can come up with new ideas and new initiatives. You don't have to just wait for things to happen or react passively. You can have a much more proactive, fulfilling life. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about lucid dreaming and I was, you know, wondering, well, what is the real, what is the practical application of that? For us. And you did address that somewhat, but, and this reminds me of a story that Doug Rushkoff told about his discovery when he was first studying computer coding. And he had his first realization that this universe was not just a read only universe, it was actually a read write <laughs> universe using the coding yep. metaphor and yep. how most of us are, have been taught and programmed, literally programmed to believe that 
the world is just the way it is and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like take, for example, in the case of most, you know, religious upbringings, young children are told that the faith, the practice of, of their parents or their family is the correct one and the only correct one, not just one of them, the only correct one. And they're just told what they're supposed to believe and do in terms of practices, but they're never encouraged in most of the religions as we know them in modern times to have experience internally. Yeah, so again, going back to dreaming and lucid dreaming, for me, dreaming and lucid dreaming are incredibly delicious and even very empowering experiences for me. Yeah. And I, I thrive on it. But then I wrestle with, with, well, how is it practical in terms of what we can bring to this world, you know, when we think about the problems that we're facing? Well, good, good question, but specifically, I give a number of examples in my book when we look at scientific discoveries broadly of our modern world, modern technologies, and I point out in detail that all of them started from people's imagination. Literally, some of the most fundamental ones came out of their dreams, like Kekulé, who developed, you know, the, the understanding of the ring structure of the carbon atoms in things like benzene, and that formed what the eventually became the basis of everything we understand in the petrochemical industry, in the pharmaceutical industry, in plastics. All of that came from his understanding through a dream of the molecular structure. And then we have people like Mendeleev, you know, who figured out the different arrangement of all the different types of atomic particles that comprise the molecular structure of everything in the world as we know it, all the elements specifically. And this came to him in a dream, how to categorize them. And in his dream, he even had a foretaste, if you like, sort of a premonition experience of elements that were not yet discovered, so he couldn't put them into his table as things we already all agreed on in the consensual reality. But he, in his dream, anticipated would be discovered. And he put in their positions that they would be occupying if they really were discovered and considered part of a reality. And he was correct. This was called the periodic table of elements. I mean, there's so many other examples. So back to your question, I'll repeat, some of our most fundamental discoveries and technologies are based on people's literal dreams. In the creative arts, many creative people, you know, be they uh, authors or visual artists or musical artists, will tell you too, these came from their dreams. You know, Arthur Kessler had a book called The Act of Creation, where he, you know, went through some of the biographical, you know, examples of people that we recognize, again, as highly creative and pointing out so much of it came through just dreams. So we're taught by contrast, you know, again, these expression just dreams, like it's not real, it's just a dream. And the reality is the opposite. Once you understand how to work with dreams, how to properly interpret and understand them in some cultures like the aboriginals of Australia, which is one of the most ancient, you know, living groups still on our planet from old cultural traditions, understandings, they have something they call the dream time, which we refer again to when we're dreaming. They believe the dream time is almost like a different dimension, and it is, so to speak, more real, more important than what we call our waking reality. So they can discover things in their dreams. They can do healings in their dreams. So again, it, it's so contrary to the way we've been taught that it's just, you know, accidental firing in ourselves or has just some subconscious significance going back to Freud or it's just random and has no meaning. Quite the opposite. It is kind of the royal road into the deeper consciousness.
So dreaming is really another portal of access to other levels of reality that we don't have access to at this level of reality. That's right. It, it's a incredibly resourceful portal into the deeper level. And it has been since the earliest recorded times. It still is because it all comes from within. And that is one way, again, of directly connecting to that. In a sense, again, not just in terms of dreams, but let's talk about more like imagination itself. That is a process of consciousness creating, whether it's a thought, whether it's an action, whether it leads to some product being manufactured or developed, it doesn't matter. It's still coming from that same source. Tonio, everything comes out of the dream world. Everything. And we can learn to have control of it through lucid dreaming. But our culture, again, has discouraged us from putting value in dreams as if it's, you know, wasteful or just an irritation for some people because they may be unpleasant dreams. I would say even more importantly, coming back to our waking level, consensual reality that we share right now, intuition, which also, again, is an inner knowing. And it's more powerful than what, you know, logic may give us or our scientific experiments seem to output. And we are discouraged generally in our culture from relying on intuition, on gut feelings. If you're asked for, you know, what's the reason why you're proposing some change? And you say, because I have this gut feeling intuition, you know, people will kind of mock and deride that. And yet when you look in business at the most successful business leaders, they are the ones who work intimately with intuition. They don't rely on logic. They don't rely on demographic surveys. They don't rely on competitive analyses. They rely on intuition, the most successful ones by far. And yet our culture keeps telling us, you know, that's just a weak form of thinking or just something we're familiar with. There's no particular, you know, extra value in it or accuracy in it. So we have this, this great, again, cultural, you know, wall, which is somewhat blinding us to the reality. And going back to my point again, which why I call my book a wake up call. You need to learn to use your own thinking ability. Don't just passively accept where you are in life right now and the condition of the world around you. So I've been thinking about this connection with uh, lucid dreaming. I don't have a lot of experience with lucid dreaming, but it seems what just hit me is that with lucid dreaming, we can combine intention with the surrender into and willingness to explore the unknown together to, in a sense, increase our ability to skillfully work with the dream realm. Yes, because imagination coupled with intention is sort of speak what it's all about. Exactly. And that makes me uh, want to have more access to lucid dreaming. I think I shared with you that the morning that I finished reading your book and at the end of the book, you briefly touch on lucid dreaming. I went into a, a liminal state as I often do when I'm reading mm -hmm. and I started dreaming. And within that dream, I went into another dream in which I became lucid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then after realizing that I was dreaming in the dream, mm -hmm. you know, I started thinking, well, well, what shall I do? <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, well, there are all these choices. Yeah. And because I don't have much experience with lucid dreaming, you know, I've read about how, you know, people 
talking about their experience of lucid dreaming and how lots of people, you know, will indulge their their sensual pleasures or or they'll go off and and explore things that they've never been able to do or mm-hmm. or to talk to people or meet people that they always wanted to. And I'm in the dream and I'm thinking, well, what shall I do? And I'm going through various things. And then I I just surrendered into, well, let's just mm-hmm. let's just fly. But not just flying as in like, you know, like Superman flying in the air through the air, but flying in, in a more kind of multi-dimensional way. Yeah, sort of going and, with the flow in a way at that level. Yes. Yeah. And I had this very unspeakable image of sort of like a metamorphosis into a butterfly with this color that was indescribable. And the flapping of its wings was in itself a like fractal boundary between layers of reality. And then I came out of it into the dream that I was having before that. And then I woke up and. uh, (laughs) Oh, you think you woke up. (laughs) You remember the butterfly dream? (laughs) Right, right. I I woke up into this reality. Exactly. (laughs) Or are you just dreaming that you woke up in this reality? (laughs) Yeah, I I love that story. Actually, Chuang Tzu was, was probably my first spiritual love which I discovered on oh, my mm-hmm. freshman year of college. And his writings literally came alive for me, as many of these spiritual books have when I first discovered them. They they come alive in a way that is yeah. that is hard to put into words. But I have that experience too, so I, I, I resonate with it. Yeah. This is the stuff that I thrive on. Well, you've done some deep thinking, as I said. I enjoy, you know, being interviewed by somebody who's had this really deep desire, no matter what, to try to understand from various sources what it's all about, make sense of it, to be a better person. Yeah, and I very much appreciate being able to talk with you who have likewise devoted your life to understanding and experiencing all this stuff together in a much deeper way than most people in our culture. Thank you. So, um, yeah, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. Likewise. And it's also interesting that the books that come to me and the interviews that come to me come in very synchronous ways. Mm-hmm. You're open to other levels, <laughs> which is what happens around you. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like the universe is winking at us. Yes, that's a good way of putting it, too. Yes. Yeah, yeah you're on the right track. <laughs> The wink part is, you know, also funny because, you know, a wink can also be uh, a bit of a tease sometimes, you know, when we wink at people in certain ways. And I think it's partly as giving us a a glimpse of what is truer and realer, but I think it's also a bit of a tease because I think, uh, as I say, my understanding is that there's an intrinsic and essential design in everything from the universal mind, universal consciousness, that there'd be a certain level of capriciousness. And there's a certain level that cannot be totally understood or predicted and by design. Just like, for example, if all our dreams were our, our regular dreams that we have, if they all were totally predictable in advance and maybe worse, it was always the same things that kept replaying. We really wouldn't at all ever really enjoy the you know, dream experience that way. Or to use another example, let's say we're watching television and if all you could see was the same program, over and over again, just that one program over and over again. After a while, it would lose its appeal as, you know, for entertainment or or any other benefit we might accrue to watching TV. So 
to make it interesting, both you know for TV programming or for ourselves to somewhat enjoy or be stimulated or affected by our dreams, there has to be a certain variety. And since I conceive of the universal mind, universal consciousness, God consciousness, as somewhat analogous to the grand dreamer, and we're all you know aspects and parts of that, there's an essential connectedness in this, which is very different than the way we would normally conduct ourselves and understand ourselves and are treated by others. Yeah, as Don Juan in the Carlos Castaneda book saying, if you knew which bush the rabbit was going to jump out of, life would have no interest. Yes, that's right. There has to be a certain level of variation coming back to just our, you know, limited human consciousness on this level for us to still be somewhat interested in it as opposed to that's totally bored or, so to speak, fall asleep. So we need that inherent variation. And as I say, too, more fundamentally, to be conscious implies, necessitates that there's something to be conscious of. And as I'm also trying to explain it with these analogies with me or things of that nature or dreams in the conventional sense, we need the variation to keep that consciousness going, so to speak. So consciousness has to have something to be conscious of for consciousness to mean anything, but that of what it is conscious of also has to have some variation and unpredictability for it to really fundamentally work out. Again, here we're putting the problem is putting this in common words, you know. I think it's somewhat doable, which, you know, I do in the book, and as I'm trying to explain to you right now, but it's hard because we confuse sometimes our words with the actual things, our words, our source speak, referring to our meaning, but the words are really in themselves have no meaning. They're just like arrows, pointers to something else. And if what we're talking about now is not in the conventional realm of our education and experience, it's really hard to both understand it and then to put in words to be able to explain it or express it to someone else. But that was one of the challenges I took on in the book, connecting the dots to get the big picture, but also to convey that understanding in such a way that other intelligent people who are reasonably educated could actually understand and take almost a psychedelic trip into the deeper reality just through a book. Yeah, and the great importance of respecting and honoring the mystery so that we can continue to, to use another metaphor, to surf that mystery. Yes, yes. It's not something to maybe, you know, tolerate it. It's to be honored. So again, it's been wonderful to talk with you, and I look forward to your next book. When do you think that'll be uh, coming out? <laughs> As you may imagine. I'm somewhat busy these days. I still work as a doctor too and, and do some consulting work. So it is in process as recently as early this morning, I was doing some work on it, but I don't have a fixed schedule. My higher priority right now is trying to spread the awareness of the teachings in my book as broadly as I can and as fast as I can, given the critical things we're contending with in our outside world. So how could people find out more about your work? Yes, I do have my own website drhowardeisenberg.com. And on that website, there is a dedicated page to my book, which goes on for some, you know, distance in terms of various things that covers about the book. And part of what it also includes near the very end of that page, if people scroll down, are a number of podcast interviews I've done with other people who've been interested in my work, which, as we are doing right now, expands on some of the teachings and the applications of the teachings in the book. So that may be really helpful. Okay. Are there any other topics or issues that we have not talked about that are uh, important to you? 
you know, as I may have shared with you before, I had this very consuming interest from a young age as a child in understanding reality. And that, again, in 2018, when I was preparing for a conference, keynote presentation is when things suddenly gelled in a different way and, and the dots were connected. And then shortly after that, I became much more aware of a lot of things not going well in our external world. You know, global climate change, the increased fractionation of our culture with people not just being on the same page in terms of agreeing, but also the, you know, this visceral distrust and even hatred. Seeing the poisoning of our environment chemically in so many ways, in ways that we don't like to know about, you know, we relegate it more to the third world. Just so many indications to me of imminent existential crisis decline. I then felt called. I didn't hear a voice, but I felt I had no choice either. I have to share this with the world. And in terms of actually writing it down in the book, as I said, aside from the challenge of taking something which is from a different realm and sort of speak ineffable and traditionally is considered something you cannot do. The mystics can say that, you know, their experience cannot be put into ordinary language terms. I took that task on, but I didn't just rely to do that on my own intellectual abilities. It was channeled. I experienced the information. I experienced the words. I experienced the examples, the metaphors. I didn't know all of that in advance on intellectual realm. And when I have reread my own book or listened to the audiobook version of it, not infrequently, I have the strangest feeling. I am reading or listening to it. It makes sense to me. It feels like something of, you know, interest and value, but I don't have the sense of, how should I say, ownership or, or authorship. It doesn't feel like, oh, I obviously wrote this. It, it was coming to me. So again, it doesn't just come from our ego or individual. And fortunately, I was able to access something way deeper that connects us all. And that's why I'm trying to share it with all. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how we're not as separate as we think we are. Not at all. But that is our problem right now. Right now, we, we overly think how separated we are. And we are invested in that to the point, again, of trying to even eliminate so-called others, you know, who have different viewpoints. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's a huge, huge challenge that we face in our evolution if we're going to survive. Right. We're really at that existential junction right now for this level of reality. Yep. And it may continue getting worse for a while. Sadly, I would tell you it will. We haven't gone into this, but I also have an ability to sense things before they happen. And so, so many of these things that have happened these last several years, sadly, I knew they were happening. I knew they would happen. It wasn't like I just thought maybe or concluded because of some things I knew. I knew it. I could see it. I still see bad things happening. And that's why, again, you hear the urgency in me that people have to wake up fast. We don't have a lot of time left. Is this something that you've experienced throughout your life? My first experiences of what we might call the psychic and a sense of a different dimension and anticipating things before they manifested physically in front of me or in others. It goes back also to when I was younger, I would say my early teens, when I actually started becoming curious of things I was reading about to actually personally like try my own, you might call them thought experiments. And started having experiences both by my intention, but also by being more open and receptive to it. So I would have glimpses of things that would come of opportunities that might, you know, be present if I'm open to them. And then it's only in the last several years 
that that sense of what's going to come has been so dark. And that's why, again, I, I feel this urgency in this call to spread this teaching. So you are experiencing the darkness, but at the same time, you're also experiencing the possibility that we can work with this. But I think the window of opportunity to save and turn things around is very small right now. I, I can't emphasize that enough, how critical it is right now, the timing. Yeah. When I mentioned the synchronicity of how things come to me in terms of the books and interviews mm. that I do, the book that I'm currently reading for my next interview is by a scientist and philanthropist who's been working on and bringing together technologies that exist and very viably and feasibly can solve our climate issues. However, we still have this other very fundamental issue of fear and hatred and divisiveness. Yeah. That can still completely destroy us and prevent us from solving anything in this world. That's right. We've not only alienated ourselves from nature, with coming back to things like global climate change and the pollution of our environment and the species extinction. And so it's a long list of all things that are wrong in that respect. But also, you know, internally, it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, which is where it all arises from the two wolves that are. Exactly. Yeah. And which one do you focus and give energy to? So although, yes, I, I see this deeper, more comprehensive reality, that's where I'm coming from in these teachings. It takes a lot of work for me in this level of reality when there's so much negativity, when there's so much separation, fractionation, to still hold on to this vision. We're all one. We have to reconnect and come back to that understanding. It doesn't mean we can't have any semblance of individuality. It doesn't mean you have to surrender that level of it, but you need to embrace the connection. It's not enough to just be concerned about your own welfare, your own survival needs. In a way, the COVID pandemic illustrates this force in big letters right in front of us. None of us are safe completely until all of us are safe of this virus. Like a metaphor, I mean, it's a very scary one, but it's true. Yeah, but I think the, the metaphor of the two wolves is perhaps even more applicable because it's something that is going on inside of all of us, at least to some degree. Yes, and that's why because I'm doing the second book on learning to regulate, to self-manage, self-balance our emotions and tame the ego. Because yes, we, we do have this strong, you know, internal conflict. And the dominant one right now is the othering external. But potentially yeah. we come to this realization that it is a choice. But you that have to aware it's a choice right now. We don't, many people don't even have that awareness. Exactly. It's that awareness of the choice. Yes. Yeah. Awareness of awareness. Well, again, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Again. Likewise, Ms. Timberlang, and I really enjoyed your personal sharing. Thank you, Tonio. And until next time, which I hope <laughs> will not be in too distant future. <laughs> <laughs> right. Take care. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. That was Howard Eisenberg. He's a medical doctor trained in psychology and psychiatry. He's been an associate professor of medicine at the University of Vermont and a lecturer in parapsychology at the University of Toronto. And he's the author of Inner Spaces, Parapsychological Explorations of the Mind. And his new book that we've been talking about is Dream It to Do It, 
the science and the magic. Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, 
you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.